0: Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Cass? Hanging in there. We're joined by a very special guest today, Patrick McKenzie, writer and expert in financial infrastructure and the author and operator of the newsla- newsletter, Bits About Money. Patrick McKenzie, how are you today? I'm doing very well,
1: everybody. And uh, before I get started, I have to make the obligatory disclaimer. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about payments today i previously worked at the company Stripe, which does uh, as many of you know quite a bit of payments uh, for six years but i'm speaking entirely on my own behalf even though i'm still an advisor there in some capacity
0: i think it'd be a good place to start just in payments payments payment infrastructure like financial payments infrastructure you're an expert in that do you want to talk about how you think cryptocurrency fits into payments and finance in general, and perhaps some of the issues that you see with it.
1: So let's take a step back for the moment to talk about payments, generally speaking. The economy is this overwhelmingly complex machine that includes a lot of uh, various actors that are bouncing off of each other and exchanging value. Uh, Typically, uh, a transaction will involve one business and uh, generally a customer of that business, whether that is a business customer uh, or a consumer customer, uh, like, you know, uh, these, uh, three handsome blokes that are doing a podcast about cryptocurrency. Transaction typically takes multiple steps and that, uh, that exchange of value is actually like kind of complicated when you get into the, the details about it. You might think like some are pretty simple, uh, simple. You go up to a cafe, you get a cup of coffee and you hand over your money. Uh, but some of them, you know, they involve an invoicing process, a multiple month contract negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. And so a payment happens as an important part that is very much not the whole of the part, which is an adjunct to these transactions an adjunct to these con- uh, customer relationships. And all payment is, is a message between the, the customer, the payee, and the business that tells the business something that is useful to know about whether they will ultimately receive money for the uh, good or service that, uh, that is under issue. Typically the form of the payment encodes some information as to the level of certainty the business should have that it will ultimately be paid about this. And kind of like the most interesting uh, thing that payments as a field has ever done is convincing people that a payment is actually much more than a promise, that there's, you know, math and infrastructure and yada, yada, yada. And there is math and infrastructure and yada, yada. But at the end of the day, all payment is is a formalization of a promise that could have been made on words or paper or via smoke signal.
2: Could you walk us through an example or prototypical payment just to show how like the payment itself is a promise and how that works kind of in practice?
1: I will disclaim at the at, at the start that uh, uh, everybody who works in payments or crypto or the finance field uh, grew up in a particular place, perhaps many places, uh, and they often filter their views on the field uh, through the experience of that particular place. And when you look at payments worldwide, uh, the various uh, different payment methods have very, very different uh, uh, user experiences and uh, sort of ergonomics associated with them. Let's use like the world's most terrible payment method. And uh, you could make a long list of uh, payment methods that are vying for that uh, for that crown. But I would claim that um, the, uh, the system of checks in the United States is a system of payments that nobody would invent in 2023 because it is unsafe for all possible use. But it's a good thing to like sort of uh, get a mental model for how payments used to work. And so back in the day, you like, go into a grocery store, you pile up a basket full of groceries, you take them to the counter, and when you pay it a check, all you are doing is saying, hey, grocery clerk, the total comes to, well, it was back in the days, it was probably like $16, uh, and uh, I promise to pay the grocery $16 for this here uh, basket of uh, uh, groceries. Uh, and actually, prior to checks being a th- uh, being much of a thing, that was the end of the payment because the promise was literally that it was a promise. The grocery uh, store would just increment your account by okay, you owe sixteen dollars more than you used to, uh, and then a uh, a few months later, you would go there and pay cash or specie or you know beaver uh, uh, pelts or whatever it was, but. Uh, when the grocery stores uh, largely tried to get out of the extension of credit business, they would say, okay, give us a check. And a check is still an extension of credit. Uh, all it says is, okay, that verbal promise that we used to make that I will pay you the $16, I'm going to write that promise uh, down here on a piece of paper. And this promise and this piece of paper are magic because you can take this here piece of uh, piece of paper and this promise on it and hand it to my bank and my bank will, ha- will hand you 16 actual American dollars uh, in behalf of this. And importantly, despite that being the transaction, the grocery store almost never actually did that What the grocery store would actually do is take the uh, the promise over to their bank, which is typically not the customers bank and they would say, hey this person has paid has uh, uh, promised to pay me16 dollars and the customers' bank would say, well golly gee, it looks like another bank has promised the bearer of this instrument here16 dollars. Uh, you could deposit that in your 16 in your account. I will credit you sixteen dollars perhaps today perhaps five days from now. Doesn't really matter. And then I, the the bank that uh, uh, you bank at, am going to go to the customer's bank and say, hey, the customer has uh, uh, made a promise for $16. I would like to collect on that promise uh, in satisfaction of this credit extension that I have made to my customer. Uh, and then uh, you layer on that like, fascinating Rube Goldberg contraptions of uh, the infrastructure built to, uh, to support this used to be back in the days that there were massive, massive courier operations between different banks attempting to uh, carry like literally tens of thousands of checks a day uh, between them because the check uh, was only actually good at the particular institution written on the check. And then uh, we developed this clearinghouse infrastructure where everyone said, you know, it is crazy that every bank needs to send out 4,000 couriers a day to 4,000 other banks. Why don't you send all the couriers to just one place in the middle and they will do the math. And uh, uh, handled this for everybody, and then um, uh, they made that uh, that uh, clearinghouse system electronic. Uh, if you've heard of ACH, it's the automatic clearinghouse. The automatic stands for computers involved. Um, and uh, uh, we've had you know progressive layers of infrastructure built on top of that, like fundamental terrible. The check is a uh, promise written to physical paper infrastructure. By the way, why is a check a absolutely terrible payment method? We would never design a payment method in 2023 that had all the secrets necessary to steal all the money printed on the face of the payment method, but a check factually does have all the secrets necessary to steal all the money printed on the face of it. And so anytime you give a check to anyone, both the person you are giving it to and anyone who even glances at that check for one moment can debit all the money in your bank account and the reason that doesn't happen constantly is because banks are extremely aware of this terrible, terrible decision made several decades ago, and uh, like constantly squashing attempts to do that. Anyhow, that's a brief uh, simplified method, simplified understanding of like the huge amount of societal effort that goes into the back office of simply trying to buy $16 worth of groceries. Now scale that up to there are many many different competing payment methods. Uh, you're probably very com- familiar with credit cards. You're very uh, familiar with various forms of bank payments. Uh, they undergrid all of the uh, essentially all of the uh, economic e- activity in the economy. One can quibble on whether cash is a payment method used in this in this case, but uh, cash is a relatively small portion and decreasing portion of payments in the economy and uh, getting smaller every year in most markets. Uh, uh, there's Variety of reasons for that. Uh, happy to go into them, uh, but uh, payments is this like yep. giant, multifaceted infrastructural beast, which is
0: hugely interesting
1: to do deep dives in. I uh, heard crypto got mentioned somewhere in this podcast. That maybe I should talk a little <laughs> bit about crypto.
0: <laughs> I do want to uh, delve into that a bit. Um, I think that's a, a good a good statement right there because I am actually a, a huge fan of physical cash. Um, I <laughs> I resolutely mention this. Like all the time on Twitter, um, and Bennett, uh, when he when he visited me out here, knows that I was using it to pay for like gasoline and, and things that most people do not use cash for. Um, why is cash dying? What do you think? And and what do you think will come to take its place?
1: What are the downsides to cash? Why? Do, so one, why is cash di- cash dying? The fun- fundamental reason cash is dying is because. Every payment method exists in competition with every other payment method for business. They wanna get business from the businesses that are selling things. They wanna get business from the customers that are paying for things. And the reason cash is losing share against other payment methods is because other payment methods give people a variety of benefits that they can't get from using cash. Other payment methods, you know, credit cards will offer to give you reward points. So the cost of doing a transaction is literally negative where most customers would say that the cost of doing a, a transaction in cash is zero. It's not actually true, but the, from the perspective of most customers that rounds to true. Uh, the uh, ergonomics of using cash are painful. You know, uh, you have to count out change, et cetera, et cetera. The cost of using cash for businesses is much higher than people believe it to be uh, because you need to actually count it, make sure it's not stolen. And um, cash doesn't have a... Uh, most payment methods have built-in infrastructure to uh, track the uh, relationship between a payment and between the customer who made the payment and the transaction that the uh, payment was made for, cash doesn't have that built-in infrastructure, and so every business in the economy that touches cash needs to build their own software accounting and contractual uh, infrastructure uh, in place of the stuff that they would ordinarily buy from Visa or their bank or PayPal or any other provider of a payment method in the economy. Uh, So that that is fundamentally the reason why cash is being outcomputed. Um, I don't expect cash to go away. Some people like like it. Two thumbs up. You do you. Uh, the uh, but people often say, "Oh, it's a conspiracy. The government wants to get rid of cash." One, the difference between conspiracy and policy goal is a matter of degree. Like if you were to go to Japan and say, "Is it a conspiracy that the government wants to get rid of cash?" They would say, "Oh, there is a actually you know a position paper that we have on this uh, exact subject where uh, currently the uh, percentage of cashless transactions in the economy is plus or minus 20 percent. Our goal is to get that to 40 percent within the next five years Here are the uh, initiatives that we have going on with the financial industry to do mm. this goal The reasons why we have this goal are one we think it will uh, decrease the tax gap particularly with regards to small businesses Two, We think that uh, this will help modernize Japan and, and uh, allow us to engage more international commerce three dot 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 dot, dot. so uh, but uh, the fundamental reason why you know, any businesses fortunes uh, go up or down is their position in relation to competitors and cash is just, you know, not what you would come up with in 2023 for a, um, a payments experience that uh, is uh, destined or, you know, designed to gain share versus modern payment systems.
0: I mean, this leads us into the cryptocurrency debate, I think a bit here is that with the, with the death of cash in general, uh, for a multitude of reasons that are totally fair and reasonable when it comes to. The future of money and the current state of money. Do you think that the future is closer to, let's say, in China? They I know everyone uses like WeChat or um, some sort of centralized uh, social media app to usually pay for things. The way anyone is known as a tourist is less whether they know Chinese, uh, know Mandarin, and more if they have like WeChat and a, a bank in China that they can use to pay for this stuff. Um, If they're using cash, they're a tourist. Um, Or do you think it's something closer to cryptocurrency where you have it decentralized to a degree or (laughs) centralized kind of stable coins, which are cryptocurrency, I guess, right?
1: I think one of the interesting things that looking at payments will like give you for a glimpse on the future is that there isn't one future for the world of payments. We are uh, likely have multiple different equilibria in multiple places. It's always difficult to look in the crystal ball and uh, uh, predicts the future, particularly for a country where one is less invested. But if I were to you know, be in the crystal ball business, I would say, oh, it does look like China will increasingly go in the direction of a very small number of uh, payment systems that are nominally privately administrated. Which are as nominally privately administrated as anything else that exists in China. Uh, and those systems will broadly be, uh, you know, fully electronic, not touch cash and uh, be relatively separate from the formal banking system unless and until the Chinese government decides that it would be uh, more advantageous uh, for them to be in the formal banking system, in which case they'll be in the formal banking system immediately. That equilibrium doesn't prevail in other places. So in many markets, uh, there is like a Cambrian explosion of competition between payment methods happening right now. And so I am something of a gamer until recently I lived in Japan. And if you were to go to Steam right now, uh, Steam lists 15 different ways you can pay that for video games in Japan. And uh, 15 is actually like a small segment of the Japanese payment market at the moment. If you go to a convenience store, the number of logos they have on the door will be plus or minus 40. Uh, And uh, 40 does not touch the entire market. That's just like the teams that were smart enough and big enough to get the largest convenience store chains in the world to accept their money. That's a very different um, experience from what we have here in the United States, where uh, for the longest time, the payments industry uh, thought in the United States that the credit card was the final evolution of payments in the United States. Mm. And that all interesting work um, in payments uh, heretofore would be like different variations on let's make it a reward card. Let's put different credit terms on it. Maybe we can make a credit card and take off the credit part and call it a debit card. And that will allow us access to a new market, et cetera, et cetera. And then just in the last few years, there's been... Uh, innovation both within the United States and coming from places outside the United States greatly impacting the US market with respect to things like buy now, pay later as an offering, where they said, you know, we can entirely like take out the credit part of this, um, or rather take out the card part of this, uh, make it palatable for the merchant to underwrite the credit extension uh, and uh, knock down the cost of credit to zero for the customer and uh, uh, work the numbers such that this works out for everybody. Uh, and uh, we see, you know, different things in uh, places like India, where India has a public-private partnership that has um, uh, sort of like the Platonic ideal of what people who say central bank digital currency, like most people who say central bank digital currency, uh, uh, care probably less about the slow database involved and more about like the fundamental user interface involved, where like any person in the economy should be able to pay any other person in the economy at an arbitrarily uh, low cost. Uh, And India rolled that out uh, with uh, their uh, sort of public-private partnership uh, payment method that is tied to individuals' identity cards and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Brazil also has an option called uh, PIX, which is uh, spiritually similar, although it has some important under the hood differences. Uh, And in India, like virtually no one has a credit card. Uh, And, you know, given a like really strong uh, publicly endorsed uh, alternative payment method, I think... One would probably be bearish on the perspective of uh, like India, uh, you know, uh, credit cards in India as a payment method capturing uh, the majority of share in that country. Uh, But who knows what the future holds?
2: What do you think the largest unsolved problems in the payments industry still are? Oh, there's so many of them. This surprises a lot of people. But the largest
1: and most sophisticated businesses in the world hate money. (laughs) And why do I say they hate money? It's because they have a team that's in charge of payments. The team is in either an organizational backwater at their uh, company, or uh, in many cases, doesn't work for their company. They work for a middleman or a systems integrator or an Accenture or similar. And the actual interface where their customers come and pay them literally all of the money is like, in some cases, it's literally a particular web page you can click on, in many other cases, uh, there's a million different interfaces all flawed in their own way but that like the the actual experience of a customer attempting to pay is broken profoundly in so many different ways like in the same fashion that science can demonstrate that cigarettes cause lung cancer this web page causes you to lose billions of dollars and that persists and so that like the high level biggest problem in the world for payments is that uh, the uh, adoption story of it for businesses is just tremendously suboptimal relative to their goals for it. You can also say the same about the adoption story for individuals. Uh, you know, uh, the quite a bit of the like the general distaste for banks and et cetera uh, is ultimately transactional friction around like routine transactions in the economy that the parties expected to go well that didn't go well for various reasons. And then, you know, you need someone to blame for that going, like, going badly and for whatever reason the, the banks end up carrying the ball. Sometimes extremely deservedly, but other times it's just because we haven't figured out a way to, at a societal level, deal with conflicts between renters and landlords, for example, uh, in a way that doesn't bring the payment method into it. And indeed, that is actually one of the uh, things that payment method offers to the world. Uh, We have this gigantic society-wide system for resolving disputes between people involved in commerce. It's called the legal system. It is galactically slow and galactically expensive. And the thing that payment methods offer is to say, okay, you will always retain the right to go to the legal system to argue over the $16 uh, basket of groceries, but neither you nor the grocery store wants that to happen. And so if you use your debit card to pay for the groceries and an apple spoils, and you go to the grocery store and can't get a happy resolution with regards to your Apple. Call the 1-800 number on the back of the debit card and say, I am unhappy, and you get your money back. And there is this like massive machine in capitalism that exists to guarantee that invariant for you. You don't have to care about that machine at all. You just have to know, call the 1-800 number on your debit card, and your problem goes away. And you don't have to pay $600 an hour for a lawyer to uh, like fight this case in court for four months because no one wants that to happen.
2: How much are these experiential problems in payments tied to the infrastructure choices that have been made so far? The building it up from checks to this automated clearinghouse to this various small kinds of credit on top of it. How are those related to these experiential problems or are they related?
1: They're extremely related. The the word we like to use a lot is path dependency. Many people in the United States and many people in the crypto industry who are heavily exposed to the United States. Uh, think that transfers between bank accounts, uh, they take forever and to the extent that they don't take forever, they still take like way too long for a computerized transaction and then cost a lot of money if you're doing wires. And all of those are path dependent They're because uh, transfers between banks in the United States is ultimately based on this model of like sending checks uh, from one end of the country to another of like various iterations we've made on top of that model. And there are reasons why those iterations persist. The banking industry does not lack for smart people. It turns out that when you're dealing at the the scales of the economy, things that you could do that would make like certain aspects of these better for some people also create losers. And society has uh, both like, you know, negotiations between firms and also negotiations at a society wide level through the government on like, you know, uh, we want a compromise here because we, um, you know, uh, do want to allocate like the winners and losers in a way that uh, achieves society's uh, desired uh, political slash moral slash ethical goals for them. And so, as an example of that, one reason that payments is slow in the United States isn't because uh, anyone is pounding the table and saying slow payments, man. That is what we need for the world. What they're actually saying is community banking, man. That is really important for the world. It is like extremely important that a, a person in it, you know, rural Nebraska has a point of presence nearby that they can ask questions of about uh, the financial system and about their relationship to the government, which is brokered through the financial system. That requires community banks to exist. For various reasons, community banks would find it very difficult to continue existing in a world where all payments were substantially instantaneous. Uh, that would result in lots of them going under due to uh, operational risk and technical risk that they can't take on right now. We can't bankrupt a third of the U.S. financial system, and so we need to have due deliberation in having instant payments being available. Which is one reason uh, for many of the negative news stories regarding Zelle, and it's one reason why Fed Now, the uh, real-time uh, net settlement payment method uh, that uh, the uh, Federal Reserve has had uh, in the cooker for uh, a while now, has been sardonically referred to as Fed Later. Uh, for the last couple of years.
0: I'm hit with two questions here and feel free to answer whichever one you think is uh, more reasonable. But um, one, I think we're talking about the payment infrastructure and I wonder if the payment infrastructure is also hindered by something um, that we've all kind of accepted as normal now which is KYC AML. But KYC AML was only really introduced within mean my lifetime, like I, I in 2001 um, after after 9-11. Um, so KYC-AML is a relatively new construct. I wonder if that actually does slow things down on purpose as a policy goal. Um, or the other side of this that I think is relevant to what you were stating is that you're talking about community banks, you're talking about kind of the banking structure of the United States. And I know that we have a lot of banks here, um, or things that are close to banks. And I wonder if we're watching that kind of collapse now. And if that indeed will change the payments infrastructure in America.
1: One, it is not to the case that, uh, know your customer KYC or AML anti-money laundering, uh, regulations started in 2001. Um, they were, uh, refined by the Patriot Act in 2001 in the wake of the uh, 9-11 attacks. Uh, but the uh, sort of legislative history of them dates back to, I believe, the late 1970s in the United States under what's called the Bank Secrecy Act, or BSA. Uh, and The uh, Bank Secrecy Act uh, basically says, like, banks, please have less secrecy from government. Uh, but um, uh, originally encodes the uh, notion that banks are uh, required to have uh, for their accounts, which have an ongoing relationship with the customer, you need to um, discover what you believe the true identity of that customer to be and persist information about that customer uh, for and their identity for the lifetime of the account and sometime after. And uh, uh, all KYC kind of like flows from that original fountain in the United States. In an international Point of view, it's kind of complicated because there are these supranational, quasi-judicial, quasi-private organizations that promulgate KYC standards, which are like somewhat rubber stamped by various international treaties and uh, government policymaking, and sometimes uh, sort of like adopted by the banking infrastructure. Less because their government has said uh, you you know legally must adopt this thing, and more because they don't want their wires, um, like the physical you know copper wires, uh, to other nations getting yanked out at the source. Um, so there's a big ball of wax there, but uh, so uh, clarifying that I think uh, it is useful for more people that are involved in cryptocurrency, an example, uh, for example, to like understand that the the genesis of KYC and AML uh, dates back to a while ago. Um, uh, does that intentionally make payments products worse than they would be? This is a complicated topic. Um, uh, one thing that I uh, and if folks haven't followed me for a while and haven't like gotten this impression already, I'm something of a crypto skeptic myself. Uh, More than something of a crypto skeptic. uh, I remember back when Bitcoin was $17 saying that it was overpriced by $17 and uh, I (laughs) have not seen any evidence over the course of the last uh, 10 years to change me from that point of view. Be that as it may. um, A thing that the uh, crypto folks are like fundamentally right about is that AML and KYC regulations are a matter of choice for society. Society should choose them to the extent that it believes that it uh, advances society's uh, uh, instrumental goals and achieves our uh, values, and to the extent that they don't achieve our uh, instrumental goals and values, we should like <laughs> change the AML slash KYC regime. AML slash KYC creates winners and losers. Uh, one of the things that you hear over and over again in talking to people who are unbanked or underbanked, and that you will see in the uh, scientific literature about this sort of thing is that uh, the you know difficulty of formally verifying one's identity to a bureaucratic process uh, uh, causes people to not be able to open bank accounts and that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, they remain unbanked or underbanked. That's negative to the extent that we want uh, everyone to you know be able to partake in the economy on equal footing and to be able to like trivially do things like order from you know doordash. That both is true, but it's not like the entirety of the story. Um, often, that gets blamed on AML slash KYC, where it is not actually required in the regulations that it be difficult to demonstrate your um, uh, your identity to a bank uh, if you are, for example, a uh, uh, an immigrant in uh, underdocumented circumstances. Uh, but banks are like kind of okay with a maximally uh, sort of risk averse version of their AML slash KYC policies, because um, uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, sort of tightening the dial on AML slash KYC improves their metrics with regards to operational losses and fraud losses. That, by the way, is another thing, like, you know, independent of any, like, so, obviously, nobody is in favor of tax fraud and nobody is in, fra- in favor of terrorism. goes kind of without saying. Uh, but uh, AML slash KYC don't only impact uh, tax fraud and terrorism. And, in fact, they probably impact those a little bit less than uh, the drafters of the policies think. Um, but they uh, also the notion that like every credit card has a... Uh, uh, you know, an identity attested to with like some degree of credence to it causes uh, having a credit card uh, to be an excellent risk signal for a variety of businesses throughout the economy, whether that is a uh, e-commerce merchant that is se- sending you a PlayStation 5 in the mail or whether it's a hotel that you're checking into, which is trying to like run a process on every customer that checks in. Are you going to be the one who like, you know, invites in uh, a prostitute and then sets the bed on fire? Uh, And like you coming up with a credit card in your name to check into the hotel says fairly persuasively to most hotels on the basis of a whole lot of historical evidence that this will not be the person that burns the hotel down.
0: We're watching the collapse of regional banking where we did see a minor, uh, minor, no, not minor, significant collapse of regional banking in the United States with First Republic, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. We saw Silvergate go under. We saw Signature. Um, It seems like this hasn't quite, Finished yet, that there's still going to be more banks that suffer, more banks that come to the same realizations that maybe they've got a balance mismatch. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering if you think that could change it, the, the fact that there could be a shift in community banking services and regional banking services in the United States in the next few years. Do you think that could alter payment processing services?
1: There's both the- the concrete, what we actually expect to see in the United States uh, spool out over the next couple of years version of this. And then there's also kind of like the, uh, if everyone were spherical cows like we have in physics classes, what would you expect? The spherical cows version is that um, society, society ultimately has goals for the structure of the banking system. One of the goals for uh, the United States having such a vibrant community banking sector is uh, that it uh, uh, helps bank the Oh, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, um, plus or minus like 50% of the United States who lives outside of a major, major metropolitan area, that might actually be like 20 or 30%, um, uh, but helps them get access to a local point of presence for the financial uh, uh, system and for their government, which interfaces with them through the financial system. When I when I say that kind of glibly, that means like, uh, you know, your bank is the place where you pay taxes and your bank is the place where you get uh, government benefits checks, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, um, Uh, It is another branch of government in all but name in a lot of ways. Historically, it was broadly believed that if there was not a physical bank branch within uh, a reasonable travel distance from your house or workplace, uh, that that was a a bug that the system should fix in the same way that the system, you know, the United States of America decided as a policy priority, uh, we don't care where you live in the United States of America, you are going to get a phone line and you're going to get electricity because uh, the standard of living that we expect for Americans will in the future include a phone line in electricity. And that happened in people's living memory, by the way. Um, They'd be very old at the moment, but the Rural Electrification Electrification Act, there are some people who were uh, alive before the passing of that act. What if it is not actually true about the world that uh, we need a physical bank branch around you to give you banking or bank-like services? What if that can be delivered uh, more efficiently through the internet? Uh, What if the thing that people have wanted for forever in the uh, advocacy space, uh, postal banking, let's put a bank in every post office, Mm. uh, can be delivered much more efficiently. Let's just put a bank in every iPhone and every Android. And uh, uh, that will be like the basic bank account available to people. And um, they can layer on like more complicated banking services, potentially including a branch if they want them. But from a perspective of like the bare minimum thing you need to exist in a society exists on every phone. I think that that in you know a spherical kind uh world is like a very reasonable thing to expect that most banking um, you know particularly at the lower ends is going to be intermediated by various players like for example Cash App, which Cash App is not a bank. Uh, I'd be a very bad financial technologist if I said Cash App is a bank. But let's say. Cash App is, from the perspective of an unsophisticated consumer of banking services, a whole lot like a bank if you squint at it. That is under criticism, by the way. I think Cash App is a wonderful thing to exist in the world, uh, that it's probably one of the best things the technology industry has shipped in the last 20 years. I don't work for Square or Block or whatever they call themselves these days. I never have. uh, They're just, uh, you know, that existing, like, two thumbs up, guys. Now, let's talk about, like, in the world we actually live in, what will happen over the next couple of years? Community banks aren't going away. Regional banks aren't going away. And... Uh, I do believe we're in a bit of a banking crisis at the at the uh, moment. Uh, banking crisis crises are not good things for the world. <laughs> Nobody should celebrate them. Uh, but this one seems to be less severe in scope than previous ones that we have weathered and you know come out the other side as a, uh, a nation slash economy. Sort of addition to issues such as uh, the you know retail uh, uh, facing experience for like basic payments and you need someplace that isn't your mattress to hold money. Uh, banks off uh, often. Uh, sorry, they also have a very important uh, credit creation and monetary creation uh function inside the United States economy, mm. uh, and those functions aren't going away, and they can't conveniently be substituted by any other player at the moment. Mm. So, uh, you know, every apartment building, every dentist office, et cetera, there is a capital stack behind that, and that capital stack, uh, in. Almost all places outside the big cities for almost all buildings materially involves uh, community banks or regional banks, uh, and uh, it would be a catastrophic outcome for the United States of America if that was not true because of the way that we have our uh, banking system set up. Now, again, there are many equilibriums that you can uh, you know, imagine different countries falling into in the world. Like If we look over at our friends in the UK, the UK is in a lot of ways a near peer to the United States. And the UK has like basically four banks, and they're cool with that. Uh, and uh, you know that's one way to do it. Uh, uh, Japan has a system that is closer to the United States in character, in that there are sort of like large money center banks uh, and also smaller community focused institutions. But these "quote unquote" small community focused institutions are much larger than they are in the United States, and they're far less numerous on a per population basis. Um, uh, but uh, you know, these are multiple equilibriums that we ended up in due to a variety of, uh, uh like straight up geographic factors due to history, fa- historical factors due to, uh, this path dependence that we're on. And, uh, the transition the United States would have to undergo to go from having, uh, more than 6,000 financial institutions to having like, let's say 200 financial institutions would be basically cataclysmic and unthinkable. So I don't expect cataclysmically unthinkable things to happen in the course of the next five, 10, 20 years.
2: The thing I hope to kind of get at with this episode is why cryptocurrencies, at least generally, don't solve most of the problems people have with payments. And I think what I've been hearing from you over these last 30 minutes is that most of our payments infrastructure is built around managing the trust of various actors in this entity and making sure that things behave in a repeatable way that is reasonably acceptable to most of the participants in the system. As we've been going over that, it has just been reiterating in my mind how different that is from the goal of like cryptocurrency as a payment method. All of this infrastructure you're talking about isn't really about transferring the actual dollars from point A to point B. At least most of the stuff built on top of it isn't. It's about managing the expectations about everyone who needs those dollars or has them. And Cryptocurrency people always focus on the actual transfer and specifically focus on trying to make that a transfer that can happen to anyone like at any time for no reason. And I think what's becoming clear to me as you're talking through this or becoming more clear to me is how often that would fail for most payments use cases. You were discussing the example with the grocery store and just a normal person trying to buy a cart of groceries discovered the cart of groceries was not up to their satisfaction for whatever reasons. In a world where cryptocurrency is the default payment method and you're using it in the way most crypto advocates would expect, you don't have that option to call the 1-800 number. You need to go back to the grocery store and try to convince them they should give you your money back. So what it really looks like to me in a lot of ways, is cryptocurrency people saw one of the problems of the financial system, meaning that sometimes these entities slow payments, stop payments, or will not allow you to be one of their users who makes payments, and decided that that was the largest problem in payments and set about solving that, and assuming once that was solved, everything else was solved. Does that match up with kind of the tension you see between what crypto advocates think is wrong with payments, and in your experience, what is actually wrong with payments? I tend to think people think uh,
1: that uh, I deserve more trust than I have. Uh, So you shouldn't take my point of view as gospel on this one, Uh, like, I don't like McDonald's burgers, flat out, I would do many things to avoid eating a McDonald's burger, but we You know, we can observe the universe outside of us and see that a lot of people like McDonald's burgers for a lot of purposes. (laughs) Now, we can observe the universe of crypto payments, which exist in like, Crypto people have been saying, yeah, adoption is coming any year now for about ten years, uh, and you know, buy now pay later it could say the same thing. And yet, buy now pay later, like you can actually use that to pay for stuff. as Sephora, if you walk into Sephora today, you can't use Dogecoin, you can't use USDC, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why is the market telling crypto thanks for this cool slow database? It doesn't solve problems for me. I will not put it on my payments website. I will not use it to transact with. Google with Delta with Hilton with all the other, with McDonald's with all the other businesses I transact with, it's because uh, crypto kind of like maniacally fo- focuses on that settlement part of the payment experience and not on the many many other things that payments have uh, brings to the table. Some of those are about money movement. Um, frequently, payments is bund- bundled with things that are not directly about money movement or the software and contracts that make money movement go, uh, and so. Uh, A pitch from the credit card uh, companies to, um, to every other user in the ecosystem since time immemorial has been, the reason you pay for credit cards is not simply a convenience fee for getting cash from their pocket into your pocket. It is because if people use our plastic, the people that come in bearing our plastic will be the most desirable customers and they will spend more money on our plastic than they would if they were using something else. And since you prefer more money to less money, you should be willing to pay a convenience fee for that, just like you're willing to pay for, for example, advertising. Uh, And, Thing that many people don't appreciate is like different credit cards have different prices for different businesses in the economy. So for example, if you use not an endorsement, et cetera, et cetera, not using any private information, you use the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Chase Sapphire Reserve is like sort of the credit card of choice for uh you know professionals in the Bay Area. Why? Because they give a lot of points and are very nice to their customers. Creating the Chase Sapphire Reserve required Chase to get in touch with the Believe Visa uh, and say, look, You've got existing tiers uh, for like different Visa cards and they get more expensive for businesses as you go up in tiers. We need an entirely new tier because we're bringing an entirely new uh, like primo experience to the Visa ecosystem. Uh, and, um, And that tier is like, materially more. It's like, a, yeah, I can't remember how many basis points it is, but that is Google-able, and It's like 60 basis points, so uh, 6 tenths of a percent or 1% more expensive for businesses to uh, take a um, Chase Sapphire Reserve than to take the next tier of Chase card. Um, why? Because like they successfully got into hands of a bunch of rich people in New York and San Francisco and many other places, and when those people, like, pull out the, the card at the top of their wallet, they spend a lot of money and businesses like transacting with rich people for a lot of money. And that is a thing that can be bought and sold in the economy.
2: I don't know that I realized that before today that like credit card fees were different for different tiers of credit cards, because normally when I've been seeing it, it's abstracted away, right? I'm looking at, say, Stripe's example, and they're charging 2.9% plus 30 cents or whatever. But that then is like a an aggregate with their margin based on like the distribution of fees they're paying to the credit card network's specifically
1: a good like heuristic for for thinking about is that this is like what is the price of coffee well coffee is like 25 cents if you buy it at a diner or it's free if you get it on an airplane or it's like six dollars if you get it from a starbucks but if you buy like 50 gallons from Starbucks at a time, they will cut you a deal. But if you buy those 50 gallons in the specific context of uh, you know, delivering them to a hotel event space, it will suddenly cost you like five times more than Starbucks uh, would, it would have charged you. Uh, and this is all just like built into those various commercial relationships and ways to deploy it. So what is the underlying cost of like charging a credit card? Well, it kind of depends like, you know, who you are in the economy, what sort of relationship you have, what other things are getting bundled into that transaction. Um, If you are Walmart, you don't pay the same amount for charging even a Chase Sapphire Reserve as for example, I do if someone uses that to buy my newsletter. Um, And partly that's uh, due to like different levels of negotiating power. Partly that's due to things like you know, providing financial services and involves like a variety of different goods. Like you know, you need a twenty four seven phone team and an ops team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is difficult to bill for those things directly, uh, and uh, the economy went away from a model in which most uh, companies said, "Okay, it starts like it's a hundred dollars a month for your basic card, uh, basic charge to get hooked up to international financial rails, and then we charge you like a per percentage fee," and mostly. With like some holdouts, the financial system has said, actually like that hundred dollars a month, we're going to absorb that uh, uh, you know we will, we will pay for the ops team, we will pay for the customer support people, et cetera, et cetera. And we will adjust our um, our percentage rates in various places uh, to be uh, to like have the entire business work off of transaction fees or software fees or et cetera, et cetera. That pricing story would be an entirely different podcast, hopefully by an entirely different person who isn't constrained by having like written so many documents about it. But uh it's a useful thing to know in the world. Um by the way, uh so probably not new information for you, but will be new for many of your listeners. The um uh, there is a greatly different cost in the cost to process credit cards versus the cost to process debit cards, and that was created largely due to uh, financial regulation in the wake of the 2008 uh, banking crisis. More or less, and I don't know if this would be endorsed by many other people as a way of saying, darn it, banks, you screwed up, uh, we are going to uh, uh, hit you back as a result of that. And again, uh, when uh, you know our elected representatives were saying, banks, you screwed up. We are going to like punch you in the face and uh, uh, like uh, decrease the amount of money that you can earn from debit cards. The Community Banking Association put their hands up and said, okay, you can do that to Bank of America. You can do that to Chase. They will continue existing. But we find it extremely, extremely useful to have um, like material uh, interchange fees, they're called, for swiping debit cards because that is like built into the cost model of providing banking services in middle America at the moment. And if you take away, that will collapse, and society-wide calamity will follow. And so there was the Durban amendment to the uh, legislation about this, which said, basically, there's a threshold. Above that threshold, you are a big bank, and you are not allowed to charge very much at all for swiping debit cards. Below that threshold, you are a Durban exempt bank, and you're allowed to charge quite a bit for uh, swiping debit cards. That was a choice society made through our elected representatives. And then the choice has knock on consequences. Like, if you, for example, use Cash App, Cash App has a a debit card offering available. I would guarantee you that that debit card is issued by a Durban exempt bank because Cash App likes the idea of being paid a lot of money for uh, doing their debit cards. And indeed, if you look at almost any fintech offering, they're their debit card will be issued by a Durban exempt bank because of money, and people like hear that and think, "Oh, that's right, regulatory arbitrage." That nobody expected that to happen. True, no one explicitly expected that to happen. Not necessarily a bad thing, though. I mean, if to the extent that we believe that, like, cash out banking underbanked people throughout the United States, or I can't believe it's not banking underbanked people throughout the United States, actually provides societal value that, like. In economic model, which makes that uh, possible for Cash App to do without charging the end user of Cash App directly for it, is like positive in some respects. Uh, and the like flurry of additional uh, fintech financial technology products uh, that are uh, where a material part of the model is underwritten by uh, these Durban exempt debit card charges uh, has provided some amount of uh, you know customer perceivable value in the last couple of years. And so you know. If you were hypothetically a regulator or a uh, uh the staff at a congressional office looking at like, oh, there's this like weird little thing that happened in the Durban uh uh in the Durban Amendment to this legislation back in the day, which seems to have these like huge knock-on consequences that weren't intended. Should we maybe like poke at that a little bit? Like you'd have to understand that, okay, that you know, um due to this past dependence, that has also created like a huge amount of things that are uh, now hanging off that amendment and like just nixing it would cause uh, consequences in the real world.
0: You brought up like a Chase credit card as an example of like, well, people in the Bay Area like the specific things that they get with this card. You know, you're talking about regulatory arbitrage now. I wonder if everyone doesn't wish that they could also provide those same kind of offers to their customers. If every bank doesn't wish that they could do that. Um, They're just not able to. And I and almost like I think about what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. And it's like they it's almost like they were desperately trying to get to become Chase. Like that was the end goal of of their business model, sort of like this idea of if we just keep we just need to keep growing. And I guess I I wonder if that's like if that's a pitfall because. Then, the only real business model for these smaller banks is to constantly grow. And like is that what we want in our in in the the community banks in these um, smaller organizations that are supposed to be for the people that they're around, the community that they are centered around? I'm a little
1: bit constrained in what I can say about like any individual bank in the banking system, partly due to, you know, reasons of being exposed to them due to prior employment, partly due to like the unfortunate social reality that uh, uh, banking is a very small world when you get down to it, and there's like probably someone who is uh, control effing all mentions of their bank today and will send out nasty grams to anyone who says the, the wrong things while occupying the wrong social position. That's not a conspiracy theory, by the way, I was one of those people in a prior life. One, uh, the United States has had a number of bank failures in the course of 2023. The banks that failed were largely not community based. They were largely not tiny institutions that uh, banked grandma and the little league team. Uh, they were large regional banks, with one two exceptions, um, uh, that uh, would, on a global scale, be among the largest banks in the world. Uh, and you know. Some banks prefer growth uh, there. Many large, sophisticated businesses prefer growing versus not growing. Financial regulators and bank CEOs at community banks would say that uh, they prefer measured steady sustainable growth and that uh, growth which is not measured or steady is likely unsustainable and likely conceals risk for the banking system. And so uh, you know, that should be dispreferred. Smarter people than me We'll uh, look at the actions that regulators took over the last couple of years with respect to some banks that are no longer with us, and say, "Hmm, was there an identifiable person in an identifiable office who could have made certain identifiable choices that are different that would have resulted in, like, the United States having a different number of banks in 2023 than it factually does?" And maybe some some decisions that were made in prior years uh, will be, um, you know, rethought in that light, stripped of euphemism. There was a bit of failure to go around. There There are banking management teams that did not apparently do a great job of banking management. There are banking supervisors who should not be captured by banking management. That's the entire point of being a supervisor, who did not do a very good, uh, good uh, job by society's lights uh, with respect to um, you know the goals that we have, uh, and we re- we required extraordinary intervention uh, to uh, ameliorate the societal fallout of failures of banking supervision, also failures by you know the banking teams, the risk departments, yada, yada, yada. There's also like external to banking supervisors and the banks. Can one look at the Fed and say, hey, we understand that it is an important societal goal uh, to get inflation under control because obviously Americans, as many people worldwide, uh, have been really feeling the pinch in the pocketbook the last couple of years. So that's important. However, you also must not collapse the banking system while you are doing this. And if you look at the written record, we told you that if you keep moving rates up very, very quickly, you will collapse the banking system. Do you remember reading those documents? <laughs> uh, and that, like, smarter people
2: than us will have, to, will have to have those discussions, but society does have to have those discussions at some level. I know you can't speak to specific banks. I'm not going to ask you to. But I know Cass can speak to specific banks. I might ask him. One, like, specific bank that we have covered was Farmington State Bank up in Washington State. And this was a small local bank. Like, their primary function was extending credit to, like, farmers in the local area who needed it to fund a piece of equipment that had, like, a predictable impact on their business. And, like, this bank being embedded in the community was better able to provide that services than others. And it was taken over by a new management team who had ambitions to transform this small community bank into something much grander. And they believed that with the appropriate partners and the right investment from Alameda Research, they would be able to take this bank and the deposits from Alameda Research and turn it into like the future of online banking and all those things. And so when Cass was talking about banks that felt compelled to grow, that was, of course, the example I was thinking about. And I couldn't help but think about the Federal Reserve Cease and Desist Letter issued to Farmington State Bank. A wonderful document.
1: I would recommend to everyone.
2: Yes. Issued months after they had already discharged the problematic uh, deposits in question and had already begun, begun the process of being acquired by a different a slightly larger bank in that region. The Federal Reserve finally got around to issuing their cease and desist that says, wait a second, you guys did a whole bunch of things over those years without telling us. That's not okay. And it was a funny document to read, both because it highlighted how many things that this bank was doing that was apparently against the rules without anyone realizing it, and like the fact that the regulator didn't issue this document until months and months after any danger from Farmington's behavior was already passed. And that tension, just that case has always been one that's stuck in my mind since we've covered it. I can see that you have thoughts on this case, Cass.
0: Well, yeah, I want to let Patrick jump in here. But I I just wanted to say that it's funny that you brought up the cease and desist order because I... I reached out to Bank of Eastern Oregon. I think that's the one that bought them or Farmington got purchased by this bank. I reached out to that bank on the day of the cease and desist letter. And um, they basically were like, yeah, well, this is no surprise. We knew this. We knew this letter was coming.
2: Yeah, It was filed like explicitly with their like knowledge and consent or whatever. Like it was said, as they've already consented to, as agreed by whatever.
0: And I think this is my my point just being that Farmington knew the cease and desist was coming as well, right? Like everybody intimately involved with the bank itself or the purchase of the assets of the bank or, you know, whatever it was, whoever was intimately involved knew that the cease and, c- cease and desist was coming long before anyone in the public did, which almost speaks to the weird regulatory nature of the Federal Reserve where you go like, so who was this for.
1: Let's step back from the specific example of a specific specific bank that might have been puppeted by a specific bank uh, that does a lot of business with <laughs> Maybe I'm letting it a little bit too much uh, show there, but uh, let's step back, back from the specific example and talk more broadly about banking regulation. So, one example of like who is this regulatory action for? It's like every regulatory action will have an address on the top of like who is supposed to you know get it and take immediate action based on it but it's also like essentially CC'd to every other bank in America. And so if your bank gets killed for uh, misdeeds and misstatements that you have made, the uh, the, the uh, document ordering the execution of your bank that gets CC'd to every other bank in America is basically a like a not so quiet instruction, like this shit will not fly, do not do <laughs> it. You don't need to hear us tell you explicitly do not do it because if you do it we will kill your bank signed the fed and every other investigative agency people have a like an interesting sort of uh, background belief that like regulators are naturally in kind of an anti- antagonistic relationship with the regulated where actually they're in like a quasi partnership and like a quasi trust relationship and a thing I said on twitter is that uh, like big CEOs in specific are kind of like the um, the old British Empire sea captains in that at sea is master and commander. They they have been bred into this role. They have the full trust of the government, and no action of theirs on any Tuesday will be countermanded. However, if they screw up. <laughs> The empire will descend with its full force upon them in a, you know, like, let's snap your uh, saber over our knee or etc. Uh, tribunal later. It is not factually the case that there is, in most small institutions, a regulator watching every email or every wire or et etc. Cetera, et cetera, that happens at the bank. They, they don't have the resources to do that. They don't want to do that. The banks don't want them to do that. Um, a lot of regulation is exposed. And a lot of regulation it involves like an ongoing dialogue with respect to, uh, you know, regulators like largely are above the level of particular commercial relationships of bank has. They, they expect the bank to have a portfolio of commercial relationships. They want to heavily inform the bank's thinking of how the bank assembles that portfolio and manages that portfolio. Uh, versus, versus like getting into the weeds of like, oh, I noticed on you know August 2nd that you paid out this money to this like one customer. I'm not very happy about that payout. Now they will get into that level of detail, but in the context of a larger uh, you know uh, quarterly inspection that says, okay, like I'm gonna sample a couple of transactions from your bank and you're going to walk me through uh, how this um, this shows that this plan that we've agreed upon together uh, is getting followed on a day-to-day basis. And if that sampling comes through, okay, then uh, and we're okay with this plan, like EA++. Or maybe we're not entirely okay with the plan. Maybe we're not entirely okay with what we've seen coming out of the bank in, le- in the last couple of months. But we certainly don't want to kill the bank because there's a community dependent on you and you haven't done anything that is like egregiously out of bounds yet, uh, we'll say, okay. You know, here's a like, here are some comments that we have. Those comments are like kind of on, on an optional basis, and maybe we'll put them in a spreadsheet here. And here's some like mandatory issues and a timeline associated with them. We want those addressed by the mandatory timeline. Like um, an example of a mandatory issue, uh, well, you can, you know, many of these records are public, but uh, like a bank might be told, hey, uh, we took a look at your chief risk officer. And that guy, Eh yeah, that's not the guy. You you need uh you need some uh you know more seasoning in your risk department. It takes a while to, to hire a chief risk officer. We understand this. So you got 9 months. Come back in 9 months and show us more seasoning in your in your risk department on the pain of our displeasure. <laughs> uh, and displeasure can mean a variety of things and the like you know, the nuclear option in the case of displeasure is we close the bank immediately, uh, which is what the seasoned letter did in that one particular case, and that happens very, very infrequently. It will happen very, very frequently if you like hypothetically sell your bank to an offshore crypto exchange, uh, like. And uh, part of the like purpose of the cease and desist letter is like, hey, things no bank should ever contemplate. <laughs> in case you need this spelled out explicitly, this would be a bad idea.
0: Well, it's interesting that you're you're talking about how regulators maybe are inclined to move in afterwards. But it's like, in in uh, and you know, like you said, this it doesn't necessarily have to be this bank that we're discussing. But in this case of of Farmington and Moonstone, is you have. A bank that, according to the Federal Reserve, if we believe what they are suggesting, when they moved their regulatory oversight from the FDIC to the Federal Reserve, they told the Federal Reserve, look, we're not going to change our business model, we're not going to do anything crazy, nothing silly is going to happen, we promise, and then they did it anyway. And I guess if they're making this promise, and it's the only promise they have to make, you would expect, especially an entity as as large and important as the Federal Reserve to be like, okay, well, let's monitor that one thing then. But they didn't. And you you go like, okay, so is the only time that they do this when it's too late? Is that is that really just that's the only time?
1: In banking, I think that often happens is that there's uh, various layered controls. And the promise itself is a form of control. Uh, like the um, like every contract in existence, uh, you know, even if there was no legal system to enforce a contract, just forcing people to come to the table and agree, this is the thing we will do and this is the thing we will not do, that creates value, because there's now a mutuality of understanding as to what the expectations are. And so even if a promise is not monitored, that promise creates value. Even if the promise is not later for- enforced, that promise creates value. Hmm. It is factually not the case that this promise will not be enforced. <laughs> uh, and. Um, I would hate to doomcast like any particular person but uh you know a thing that the like again using the the master and commander example a british sea captain doesn't have to be explicitly told the british empire not a fan of piracy now privateers if you wander into piracy and by the way we will check if you wander into piracy you will be dealt with most severely that is the most basic thing that anyone who is a british sea captain you know Uh, who has grown up in the English countryside at their family estate and has the proper breeding to walk into a court of admiralty, understands about the world that they live in. But if piracy is actually discovered, on behalf of it, on behalf of a Navy ship that is flying the flag of the British Empire, everyone involved will be dealt with most freaking severely, so that for a thousand years, no one forgets that one does not do piracy under the British flag. Now, what could possibly happen to bankers who have wandered into doing extremely non-prudential things with, with banks under their control? One could
0: only speculate. They're
2: ex-bankers. <laughs>
0: They just don't do banking. Just don't do banking in the U.S. anymore, I think is the real solution here. (laughs) Uh,
1: That that has not historically been the only uh, punishment that can get handed out to uh, people who have uh, done uh, uh, not wonderful things to the banking system.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but it's been a while since we sent anyone to prison for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you want to do the like five minute versions of stable, stable coins as a payment method? Acknowledging my anti crypto cryptocurrency bias because I prefer my databases to be vast databases and not slow databases. Let's like factor out cryptocurrency out of the stablecoin discussion entirely. Let's say we live in the Harry Potter universe and someone comes up with a way to uh, compete with like physical exchange of nuts and galleons. And they say there's a new spell and you can wave your magic wand and it instantly transfers money from point A to point B at a arbitrarily low cost. Isn't this going to like outcompete the wizards who use their Visa credit card? And the answer is, well, it competes on like multiple dimensions with Visa credit cards and with uh, bank transfers in the UK or elsewhere in the wizarding world and with buy now, pay later and all the other things that a wizard has access to, including potentially other magic spells that could be developed in the future. And just the, end, just the fact that it is instant and just the fact that it is low cost is not competitive with some of the other things because, like, a credit card can make your cost of using it actually negative when you factor in rewards. You know, the magic spell doesn't have, like, explicit semantics around getting refunds. And you, like, plausibly, if you are buying something from a company that you've never used before, where you, you know, just Googled the name of the product, ended up on this random shop, eh, it looks like a website, but can I trust them really? then you wouldn't be inclined to like magically wave your wand at them and uh, transfer money over. Or, you know, we define the semantics of the spell as being like you wave your magic wand and money immediately moves from point A to point B. Is there a subscription capability built into this magic spell? No, because we didn't put that in the magic. And like being able to bill someone on a subscription basis is enormously useful for a huge variety of commerce from like, You know, buying magazines to uh, storing a payment method uh, so that your checkout experience in the future doesn't have to involve, like, explicitly invoking that payment method at all. Indeed, some of the best payment methods in the world on a lot of axes don't do very well with uh, respect to the stored thing, and they introduce friction. And again, like, we can science out that friction and how much it costs businesses, and it turns out it costs a lot of money. And so, like, there are businesses that would say, even if you, like, hypothetically had the magic wand available, we would get more money supporting Visa and paying for the payments via the payments ecosystem than we would in taking free magic wand payments. The free magic wand isn't free. You have to be a, a member in good standing of uh, Wizarding, Wizarding Britain to get a magic wand issued to you. And it turns out that the number of people in the world who have magic wands is canonically like very small. And the number of people who have payment instruments available to them is very large. And uh, the, like, if you are you know, Amazon and you have a team of very smart people that are in charge of like prioritizing 800 payment methods in the world and saying, which one of these should actually make it onto the amazon.com uh, website, uh, like plausibly you would think, eh, like magic wands. There's like 10,000 people in Britain that have them. Those are a very small portion of our book of business relative to like buy now pay later. I will prioritize magic wands very low on my stack. And then the people holding the magic wands are like, well, this kind of sucks. I can't use it to pay money on Amazon, even if it were free and instant. I can't use it to buy a burger at McDonald's, even if it were free and instant, etc, etc. I guess I should use the other 800 things that are competing for my attention." So that is the problem with stablecoins in a nutshell. It has been reported that stablecoin volumes are increasing massively, and this is an uh, this is a sign of real user adoption. I often think that cryptocurrency says, you know, our slow databases are publicly available, and this allows you to like verify facts about them is greatly oversold. If this is true, uh, then we are getting information about with without loss of generality, like the FTX uh, bankruptcy uh, at a time, which is not the same time as those relevant f- facts were published to the relevant blockchains, which should give people some pause about how reliable the information is, and how comprehensive, and how many people are looking at it, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say hypothetically, uh, many people involved professionally in stablecoins believe that stablecoins are helping to bank people who are on the edges of the uh, you know global financial system. Like maybe they they are being used uh, quite a bit uh, for uh, dollar denominated transfers of value in various countries, and without loss of generality, Africa. That's a thing that exists in the world. The edges of the financial system are kind of the edges of the financial system by nature. And sort of the oldest story in tech is that things start at the edges of the ecosystem. This is um, Clayton Christensen's. uh, creative destruction thesis like work, it, worse is better happens in various places and existing incumbents don't look at those various places and then eventually the thing that was was worse becomes better in almost all the places and takes all the market share you can believe that stable coins are going to take all the market share and payments in the united states there are some pretty huge like structural reasons why that is extremely unlikely to happen and um, not least of which the united states government has an enormous stake in payments in the united states and uh, would have like viscerally oppose that in a lot of ways and would be a competitor uh, that has a lot more advantages going to it than any random stablecoin team has and uh, often you hear like central bank digital currency as like okay a government-backed stablecoin would be a really commanding entrant in the um, a, you know in the payments market in a particular country you say okay well a government backed payment payment method like sometimes they are um, Uh, And every payment method is government-backed to a greater or lesser extent because every banking system is government-backed to a greater or lesser extent, bracket that out for a moment. In some countries, like uh, the government has uh, either through first party or through public-private partnership uh, brought a really compelling payment method uh, to market and that payment method has gained a lot of share. We talked about India, Brazil, for example. In other countries, uh, the government has like brought out a payment method, and nobody cared, and nobody came, and you still use, you know, debit cards or interbank payments or yada yada in those countries. Does the slow database make government payment method better or worse? I contend that anywhere you can use a slow database, you can use a fast database, and it will have all the benefits of the slow database but be faster. And people in crypto have often said, Patrick, you are being unfair. The slow database allows you to have this be an entirely trustless system, and trustlessness is a good thing. Trustlessness is not generally considered a good thing by the kind of people who make central bank payment systems, <laughs> so it seems extremely unlikely to me that uh, the like product features around trustlessness or product features around uh, an intense concern for privacy will be uh, features of like future central bank delivery payment systems in most countries that are of interest to listeners. That bit about privacy is interesting. Plausibly we care a lot about privacy. Uh, and you know, but plausibly society cares a lot about other things too. And so, you know, like every other concern and value and instrumental world that we have, these exist in trade-offs with each other. People in crypto don't believe this, but the you know, institution that is credit cards in the United States are fairly privately protecting by default relative to a lot of other things you could do. Like for example, you can buy things on a credit card without necessarily having to give your address. That didn't used to be true about checks. Uh, they had your address printed on them by default.
2: Uh,
1: and you can uh, you know, often uh, have like semi-synonymous identities uh, uh, using various payment methods where uh, that uh, did not used to be um, very capable. And so in like, uh, future payment methods that gobble lots of share in the world, like privacy will be one thing you can offer to users. Candidly, I think the financial industry is largely going to say, well, we shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't do stupid things with regards to privacy. Actually, I don't know that all teams will necessarily decide that there apparently are some payment methods that broadcast every transaction to a world uh, rebull feed by default. That strikes me as a extremely crazy decision, but like firms have made it in the past, (laughs) but like. Most users, their revealed preference is that they don't make decisions in life based on what maximizes for like a privacy advocates' view of their privacy. They use Google for their for their uh, email not because they believe that nobody will ever be able to read their email at Google, but because like Gmail has a better client, because Google is a trusted brand name. Um, I think privacy advocates broadly don't appreciate the fact that like Google is better at securing your email from both a random hacker and from, you know, a legitimate government authority than uh, J Random Host is from uh, securing your email in those cases because they will have Google's resources backing up the uh, response to a subpoena versus like J Random Host. Um, but uh, so stable coins at taking over the world of payments, I don't see it. Willing to be wrong, willing to look at evidence. You know, TikTok, guys, we are 10 plus years into this, and a lot has happened in payments in the last 10 years, and very little has happened in uh, the, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars invested effort to make slow databases the future of it. So, if you want to change my mind, you are welcome to publish evidence to the Internet and I will look at it. But you got to get people actually using the thing. And if you don't, well, then, yeah, you know, there's a lot of fun toys in the world. I like computers built out of Redstone and Minecraft as much as the next guy. They will have zero percent market share in all cloud work- workloads in the future.
2: It's actually funny because we are almost exactly today. 4 weeks out from the very first from the 9 year anniversary of the first stablecoin being issued. The very first Tethers were issued in November of 2014, like November 9th or something. We're almost exactly 4 weeks out from the 9 week anniversary. They used to have a merchant API that was taken out at like month 6 for their stablecoin.
0: Yeah, and don't forget the ability to trade Bitcoin for US dollars. Oh, I, I <clears> never forget cash. <laughs> so, uh,
1: I, I think we are all uh, peas in the pod with respect to reviews on Tether here. But just for those in the audience who don't know, uh, I uh, once said that uh, Tether is the internal accounting uh, system for the largest fraud since Bernie Madoff. I think I wrote that in uh, 2019 after years of looking into them. That is obviously untrue right now. They're bigger than Madoff ever was. Uh, but um Uh, Yeah, I don't know that Tether was necessarily the first stablecoin. I think there were a few abortive attempts at uh, like coin, et cetera, before that. But be that as it may, they're far and away the largest uh, stablecoin to the enduring irksomeness. How do you say that in English? Uh, It irks legitimate businesses that are attempting to bring stablecoins to market that like the largest stablecoin in the world is operated by criminal conspiracy uh, and that the largest stablecoin in the world is... um, for the people at the legitimate competitors, like essentially counterfeiting the US dollar and then exchanging that for the reserves of the uh, people who are attempting, pretending a little bit of both at different times uh, to comply with all the rules. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, I don't expect Tether to uh, uh, continue being the largest stable coin in the world for forever. Uh, I also don't expect them to stay out of uh, prison for forever. Uh, Madoff got what? 17 years before getting substantially more years uh, as a guest of the United States government. Um, I expect uh, they will eventually get what is coming to them and it won't be a 5.025% on a two-year T-bill on the reserves.
2: I think that wraps us up. Thank you very much for joining us, Patrick. Uh, I highly recommend everyone listening. Check out Patrick's newsletter, Bits About Money, which we'll link in the description and on the website. And just one more time, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so
1: much for having me, folks. Uh, You can uh, find me around the internet. and Patio 11 in most of the places, including Twitter slash X and whatever they call it these days. Uh, And uh, if you uh, like these topics, I write uh, weekly or biweekly about them at
2: bitsaboutmoney.com.